This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Siberia Bar and Hotel on Bellman Street, Aberdeen. Located only 30 seconds walk away from the nearest bus stop, taking supporters to Pataudry for free on match days. Siberia Bar and Hotel is open seven days a week, all year round, and get fired in with our exclusive discounts. Head to the bar and quote the phrase ABZ Pod, that's ABZ Pod, for a £3 pound of Foster's, a £4 for a pint of Moretti or Dark Fruits, or £5 for a pint of Fierce or a Daiquiri any day of the week, including match days. Come on, you Reds. Red slight of foot there. Hello and welcome along to episode 128 of the ABZ Football Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Gary Scott, and this week just joined by a solitary Gavin J. Baxter. Gav, how's it going? Yeah, the vibe is very, very different in comparison to when we were talking last week about the victory in Glasgow, the progress in the cup, the the upturn in our season. Maybe spoke a little bit too soon on that one. Yeah, let's wait and see. Uh, no Graham this week. It's back to school for Graham, so he might be missing for a, a few episodes coming up shortly. But it's still going to be a, a relatively busy one here on ABZ FP. We're going to take a look back briefly at our 1-1 draw with HJK, or sorry, Hoyakar on Thursday afternoon. We'll review our 0-0 draw with St. Johnson on Sunday in the Cinch. We'll check in with the latest news from AB24 in the week that's just passed. We'll take a look at our loanies and loan watch. We'll have a look at the young team in the Quines. And then after the break, with it being international fixture time again, we'll bring you the latest in our round of my favourite game. This time it's with the Times' Scottish football correspondent, Michael Grant, as we look back on Aberdeen 4, St Johnston 0 from 2014. And we'll also talk about the release of his updated and revised edition of the book, Fergie Rises. But first, Gav, a 1-1 draw to open up our home campaign in the group stages of the Conference League with Hoyakar. Again, we're not going to go into a full-blown review of this one because, you know, by the time the episode comes out, it'll be probably the guts of a week that's passed. But um just felt like, again, another real opportunity missed on, on Thursday evening. Yeah, absolutely. The first half was, um, I felt, you know, we were more than competitive, controlled possession, controlled the tempo of the game. Off the top of my head, I can't think it was creating any clear-cut opportunities as such, but very much had the feeling that, if we just carry on with that kind of tempo, the kind of style, the kind of composure we're showing, that chances will come. And then in the second half, the the change in attitude was just very difficult to to comprehend. Do as much more akin to, you know, that kind of performance I'd expect for maybe if it's a Celtic or Rangers coming here or a significantly bigger, better team than, than with all due respect to Helsinki. We just became very passive and just let them into the game. And even with that being said, it's still it's it's one opportunity that they get, and it's criminal to me how a throw in and well, you know, whether it's a foul throw or not. I mean, I think I think every throw in that Helsinki put into the field was a a foul of some kind. But it's a, a throw in, a pass, a run. There's four Aberdeen players stood in about a five meter five by five square who just let this guy go, and then. 
how you have a 20 plus goal striker alone. He still has to do a lot, but it's a good, he's new, he is alone in the penalty area. It's, uh, it felt very all too familiar. And I think the frustrating thing is that then from that point on, the goal comes about from more bad defending from Helsinki. It's, you know, it's Jensen hitting the ball long, definitely more in hope than an expectation. And, you know, we get fortunate. But um, coming away from the ground, you know, I felt that, I think I remember saying that if I could give two teams zero points for a draw, <laughs> this game is the one that warrants it. I was, yeah, bitterly, bitterly disappointed. I think it just reminded me that there's just still, even though we're in the Europa League conference group stages, there's just still such so much ground we have to make up to be a team that can actually be there and and win games at that level. It's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Because I thought we played okay in the main, as you just touched on there, though. We just... You know, dominated the ball, dominated a lot of possession. We just didn't create any real clear-cut chances, especially in the first half where we were well on top, certainly from a possession and territory perspective. And as you say, the start to the second half was odd. It's a really good finish by Radulovic, in fairness. It's a, it's a fantastic finish. It's the only sniff a goal he has all game. You can see he's got a little bit of quality about him. <clears throat> I guess the positive you can take out of it is there's a, you have to give the, the team a level of credit in that they never gave it up, certainly got that equaliser through again, maybe a little bit of fortune more than anything else. I thought it's a, it's a good header by Boyamiowski. We should then get a winner through Duke as well. That's that's two one-on-ones now that Duke's missed in European football. Um, in fact, it's three. He missed one against Heck and away from home as well, now that I think about it, that he puts those away and it, we could be in an entirely different, you know, um, stratosphere almost, I guess, from, from where we're currently sitting at the moment from a European perspective. As you say, just frustrating. Another big, healthy crowd in the ground. But it leaves us now with an uphill task to consider trying to get out of the group, I think. It was an uphill task as it was, um, regardless of whether we beat Helsinki or not. But yeah, that just felt just another missed opportunity. Like Hecken, like so many instances when big, healthy crowd, a lot of excitement in the city. You know, I, I could feel it in, in Siberia, at our fan zone before the game. I could feel it in the ground. And I think the crowd were with them in the first half. And then it was just that, the way we started the second half was just very, like I say, confusing, difficult to believe. And which we created a rod for our own back with that with that goal. You can't defend like that at this level and expect to get anything. So, you know, I now you mentioned that I've I'd forgotten about the Duke one-on-one. And I think that just shows the the lack of confidence that's within him. It's the exact same situation as as Hecken at Potaudry, where it's one-on-one, and he just smashes the ball straight at the goalkeeper. Uh, Duke of last year does something outrageous and or more composed to to guarantee that's a goal. So, yeah, missed opportunity. But I, coming away from the ground, I didn't feel like we had done enough to feel like we deserved to win the game. I think a draw was, I think a draw was probably fair. Yeah, I felt it was like European games go probably, you know, hecking at home under Stephen Glass was obviously a, a, we, we absolutely battered them but it felt that it's a long time it's a long time since we've played against a side who, who arrived with a level of European pedigree it's fair to say in Hoyakai you know they've they've this is their third season in a row uh, playing European group stage football where we've really you know where we've asserted ourselves on the game certainly from a possession perspective we've got our foot on the ball and we're kind of almost playing a little bit of a continental style from that perspective keeping the ball away from them but just failing to, to really create any sort of clear-cut opportunity in that first half. And as you say, you can kind of feel the, the atmosphere kind of draining away a little bit as the first half wore on. Um, and yeah, the start to the second half is, is, is very, very poor. 
let's move on from that anyway but i guess before we do that you just touched on it there thank you to everybody who um who did come down to siberia pre-match on thursday i know that the weather was absolutely atrocious so that didn't help um make it easy to to just to make a decision to come into town before heading down to the football but if you did really appreciate it it was great to catch up with certain people um who we know from the twitter sphere in person uh johnny main it was great to catch up with him and, and his family and um, we'd also met bob of jim layton beef olive pills fame as well which was great and um yeah honestly brilliant thanks so much to people condemned for it thank you again to beth and to scott who are playing the the tunes and hopefully maybe we can repeat something like that maybe um after the new year maybe when the weather might be a little bit better and we can maybe make use of siberia's excellent outdoor area as well which we couldn't do but um let's move on gav i think shall we <clears throat> to sunday so aberdeen nil st johnston nil sunday the 8th of october 2023 at stadium in the cinch of course that's a bit of big news gav isn't it it's not going to be the cinch any longer after next the end of this season. So we have to cherish Ryland while we still have him. It would appear that way unless he decides to get a gig, presumably supporting Parks Motor Group, who I imagine will be <laughs> unveiled now as the new sponsors just to appease one team. Anyway, two changes from the starting 11 against Hoya Carr, which saw Connor Barron and Johnny Hayes come back into the team in place of Leighton Clarkson. And Jack McKenzie, and a surprise on the bench with the exclusion of Ordadia. Sorry, just joking. A surprise on the bench with the inclusion of Vicente Bejauin. And in rain-soaked conditions at Pataudry, it was the wayside who started the brighter, but without calling Kelrus into any sort of action. Duke then with a free kick from distance. The meet-off gathered at what was, I think, the third attempt by the time I got to counting them. Rubizic then needing some treatment from a head knock as the game pretty much failed to get going Saints still was probably more of an attacking threat as Aberdeen really struggled to get going in this first half until just before half time a well recycled corner kicks all Baron flash a ball and Constantine appearing to nod the ball into his own net forgetting who he played for as he was under pressure from Duke until VAR then intervened Duke flagged for offside that was then confirmed by referee David Monroe that Duke had in his eyes interfered with Constantine so the goal was chopped off half time Nil-nil, and into that second half, Richard Jensen with a glorious chance to give Aberdeen the lead on 53 minutes. Another well-worked free kick. Again, saw the ball lofted in by Barron, but Jensen couldn't quite get on the end of it after making a really good run. A double switch for Aberdeen then saw McGrath and Shinny withdrawn for Povar and Clarkson. And that was a double switch that did, it seems, have the right effect. Aberdeen began to then get a little bit more of a foothold in midfield. And then... After saying that, it was Liam Gordon that flashed a shot goalwards that was deflected over with Kelrus absolutely stranded. Miofsky then with probably the chance of the game, Barron with a fine through ball to him. He did well initially to create some space before then lashing his left-footed effort over the bar. Duke then with an appeal for a penalty as he appeared to have been brought down on the corner of the box by Gordon. Nothing doing there as we did begin to eventually assert some domination on this game with 15 minutes to go. Hayes lashing a wild effort wide from about 30 yards after a Clarkson free kick had hit the wall. A third sub for Aberdeen, Sokler on for Devlin with 11 minutes to go. Robinson then booked for a pretty cynical foul, it's fair to say, on Sokler as he was engaging on a breakaway which brought a booking for the Saints defender. Big shout again there for a handball on Carey from a cross ball by Hayes. It looked like it touched his arm, to be fair, on the replays, but again... VAR said no. Duke then with an effort off the post before Miofsky, I don't know what he was thinking, elected to overhead kick an attempt, which he probably had time to take down and finish that effort then bouncing off the deck and over the bar as Aberdeen began to get, let's just call it a little bit desperate. Uh, another ball in from Barron 
evading everyone in justice, though, it looked Sokla was going to nod at home. It skipped off the turf and into the arms of Mitoff. And then a last gasp chance once again, a free kick from Hayes, met by Miofsky, but from the centre of the goal, his header flashed wide. Full-time, goalless at Pataudry. On the data front, 55% to 45%. Shots, 10 to 9. Shots on target, 3 to 0. Expected goals, 1.03 to 0.33. On Ogav, um, a disappointing afternoon at Pataudry. As again, kind of similar to Thursday night, a glorious chance to, well, in this instance, jump up to fourth in the table goes begging. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's disappointing on a, a number of factors. Um, first of all, the more pragmatic thing being simply that, yeah, win that game, then we climb up the table to fourth place and you are got Aberdeen back in a place where we can probably not unfairly expect us to be given the level of investment and given the f- finish to the season we had last year and simply where we want to be um, in the league going into the international break. And then... You know, the performance, very difficult to believe this is the same team that put in such a shift in Frankfurt and battered Ross County twice and went to Ibrox and took them apart with relative composure. Um, very disappointing performance, much more similar to the the kind of performance we were playing in earlier in the season when there was not a lot of quality throughout the team um, in any way, especially with the ball, unfortunately. And again, you know, it's just it's, it was a good crowd, you know. People showed the up weather. Yeah. in the terrible weather. They they persevered. They stuck with the team and just didn't get it. And again, you know, I've watched the highlights just this afternoon, just throwing myself at the game. And when you look at the highlights package, you would think that we, you know, battered them. And on the balance of the chances, we we deserved to win the game. You could potentially argue, but coming away from the ground again, I think I just remember thinking that we did not do nearly enough to to justify winning the game. Um, but then you do get the opportunities and they do fall to the ideal man. And I guess the major show was like, it just wasn't going to be our day because if Miofsky's ballooning a shot from 12 yards over the bar, then yeah, just not going to happen for you. I mean, I think on the cold like, day, when you do look back and again, I think we probably created enough chances to win the game. And that's the disappointing things that we don't do it. But I just don't think we ever really, until the last 15, 20, 25 minutes, I don't even really got on top of St. Johnson at all. And and that was disappointing. We'll come on to that again in a minute or two. For you, were you surprised at all with the starting 11 that, that Robson went with? A selection? You know what, actually? No, I wasn't. I entirely expected that Connor would come back in given his performances against County. And I thought that Robson would want to use him again in that exact same position to, to dictate play, to get a foothold in the midfield and control the tempo of the game. And as far as going back to the three-five-two setup, well, not going back to, I, mean, I guess, I mean, in in domestic football, um, I think Johnny Hayes has kind of probably been marked as a player that offers more going forward than Jack McKenzie. That's probably the justification as to why he's coming back in. So I'm not against it. I wasn't actually per se against the rotation, um, and no, I wasn't surprised. Maybe did I maybe think Duke would drop out and Sokol would come in? No, not really. <laughs> um, I think yeah Robson is definitely uh, welded to a certain lineup and a certain set of players so no not not really surprised once again and it's not been uncommon so far this season we got off to a really sluggish start and that really allowed Saints to get a foothold in the game and, and allowed them to gain some confidence it shouldn't be forgotten that Saints obviously arrived at Patojo and left Patojo it's, um, it's correct to say bottom of the pile they haven't won a game yet this season Um 
but we kind of let them just ease their way into the game, didn't we? And, and allow themselves to get that little bit of confidence. And that's that's an issue. There's been far too many instances this season already where we've been very, very slow to start games. This is what I've seen online a lot of people commenting. Uh, Martin Stowe, I think I remember, commented during the game or perhaps afterwards that it's it's very, as an Aberdeen fan at home, and this isn't, you know, this isn't being big-headed about being Aberdeen or whatever, but you're right, we've put in a lot of money into our attacking options as well and our creative options. St. Johnston have had a torrid, what, two and a bit years, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, could easily have gone down both seasons prior. And you are talking about a team that, what, bottom of the league, haven't won a game, got absolutely battered in the group stages, the League Cup as well. Very low in confidence, and yet Aberdeen appear to be set up to play on the counter-attack at home against St. Johnston rather than getting Connor Barron, getting Jane McGrath, Graham Shinney running the midfield and, you know, getting the fullbacks up and down the line, getting chances in for, for Duke and Miofsky. We just appear to be quite content for St. Johnston to, to have possession of the ball. And I think I remember our stats showing that that's not what St. Johnston really want to be doing. They appear to be more comfortable out of possession or that's the way they're set up. So probably as much of a shock to them as yeah. us, how much possession they had in the middle. Um, at times we made them look like a half decent team. I know, which is the, the terrifying thing. We'll come on to talk about setup and the way that we're playing at the moment in a minute or two, but I don't think there's much in the way of complaint we can have about the goal being chopped off. Um, I have a little bit of a question mark about where the line has been drawn for the offside, but let's give them the benefit that and suggest that the calibration have been like done correctly, and it's probably fair to suggest that Duke has interfered with Andy Considine to an extent, unless, as I said earlier on, Andy just decided, decided he wanted to head one home at the Mercom Den for old time's sake. Um, but I was really surprised at that point that we didn't take that momentum and bring it into the start of the second half. Um, again, we were quite sloppy at the start of the second half, and it took until the introduction of Povar and Clarkson for us to actually start getting the ball down. And once we started doing that, we kind of started to look decent enough at that point, and that's when opportunities started to arrive, which we ultimately passed up. I mean... What Considine is doing from a defensive perspective there, I'm not entirely sure. That is a man who uh, is all about the dandy dons. <laughs> yes, yes. And stand up looking heartbroken. Oh, what have, I, what have I done? What have I done? Secretly. Yes, fist bump. With it, yeah, I mean, I, it was almost like the goal, the incident happened, thrown because it happened like just on halftime. If maybe we would have carried that sort of sense of, Injustice is maybe the wrong word, but I think curiosity as much as anything about the fact that it's an offside, but Monroe still goes to VAR, which is fairly unprecedented as far as I can think of when with VAR being in play. In fairness now, I think what's happened there is the offside decision was given. That's a matter of fact. Monroe was sent to the monitor to check whether he thought Duke had interfered with Considine in such a way that the goal should be ruled out. That's what's happened there. I think it's a two-stage process. I, I think VAR is a... I think of the referee in the truck should be able to dis decide, well, yeah, Constantine's going to is heading this ball because he wants to clear it away from Duke. So I, wow. I don't do it really I mean, well, yeah, actually, given the way he's playing right now. Um yeah, I mean it was very curious, but just in the in the field, because like as as the fans of the stands who are being told really nothing other than you're checking for offside. Yeah, absolutely. Our understanding will be just that, well, offside is a is a matter of fact. It shouldn't be coming down to the opinion of the of the referee. And yeah, I, you're you're right. I mean, just, I remember 
turning to Graham and thinking after five minutes, well, what I thought was more like 15, and saying, well, this is a, this hasn't got any better, has it? And just looking to the screen and seeing only five minutes had passed. And it's like, I really just want to go home right now. <laughs> this is miserable. This, this is how I felt about the, the hour mark, which was still the first half of Thursday. Um, yeah, a very... Just again, same same old thing. No real, no real tempo, no urgency. If we had the ball, generally speaking, it was swinging back and forth between Jensen and Gartenman and back to Roos and back and forth again. And maybe Rubicic will get it. And then frustrating, aimless long ball, usually yeah. going up for a goal kick. And this is the bit that becomes most frustrating because, as we said, when Povara and Clarkson came on, that's when we started to get the ball down. And when we started doing that, short corner, we looked all right. And that's where we start creating chances. It's almost as though the two of those things go hand in hand. Well, we talked about this at Ross County, didn't we? When we played that Audrey, how much better of a team we looked when we did that. Uh, by the way, I'm just going to update the scoreboard because Jamie McGrath was honking on Sunday. So let's make that 2-1. Yeah, he didn't have a great game, it's fair to say. So I think it was entirely justified that he go off when he did. I was a little bit surprised that Shinny went off just mm-hmm. because, again, I just feel that Robson is one of these managers maybe a little bit like McInnes where regardless of how some people play, they're just going to stay on the pitch no matter what. So to see him come off was a little bit refreshing because, you know, Graham wasn't having a good day at all. And it did bring a different kind of intensity, like Leighton Clarkson started doing things that Shinny would expect him to be doing as far as just chasing and harrying things. And Paul and Clarkson, they both came on. And I think, all in all, I think that she played pretty well and they seemed to complement the work of what Connor Baden was doing as well. And like you say, that's when we start to look a little bit more like a football team. It's just upsetting that it took until the dying minutes of the game for us to really start piling on the pressure. Let's talk about the setup a little bit because again, I think this is fundamentally where so much of this is falling down for us. The three-five-two, and then at times the four-five-one that we've utilized so far. It's clear to see that against teams that we expect will dominate the ball against us. It's fine and it's working well. We demonstrated that against Eintracht away. We demonstrated that at Ibrox. But it simply isn't working in games where we're expecting to have the majority of the ball and when we look to dominate games. It's even, you know, okay, we beat Ross County 4-0, but in that opening, I can't remember how long it was until we scored against Ross County at home. But in that opening phase, like... It wasn't working even then. It was when we got the goal and went a goal up that the kind of confidence started to come. And I think part of that as well is because Ross County at that point have to open up a bit and have to try and commit to, to, to taking something from the game. Similarly, we get the early goal in Dingwall, which forces County to have to come out a little bit. And also there's the red card in play there as well, which opens up space and allows us to play a bit more. It's so frustrating because there's that, you know, the system, the shape, the setup, the style, it's all coming together into a place where we've got such a lack of width. We're not stretching teams. We're playing through the central areas, but we're not doing it quickly enough in the main. When we do it quickly, we'd look decent, but we're not doing it quickly enough. And we end up doing again, like we did on Sunday, lots of aimless balls up the park or kind of like percentage balls in the channels or hoping for Duke Miowski to, to, to take something in. It's just, I mean, and again, you know, I'll look at, I'll, I'll tweet this out when the episode goes out. There's the average position map from the weekend. And just look at that lack of width further up the park there. I mean, you've got Devlin for, you know, Devlin wasn't getting up and down the line as much as he has been in, in recent weeks. But even then, I think it's a lot to be asking your wing backs to be continually providing the width 
in a team. Johnny Hayes on that graphic isn't kind of getting over the halfway line, really. Miofsky and Duke, once again, look pretty isolated, don't they, up top? And it's just, it's frustrating. And I think, as you touched on it, it's almost like we want to set up to be a counter-attacking team, which on one hand would be fine. And, and I've seen plenty of teams execute this really well, you know, across Europe in recent seasons where they set up to be a, a counter-attacking side. But it doesn't work for a team like Aberdeen because in the vast majority of games, especially at home, again, domestically, we're going to play teams who very rarely come to even try and attack you. So you've got nothing to counter against. It's frustrating. And I think the reason why it's so frustrating is that, you know, we, we played this system last season with Robson and I think we got probably the way for this to work to be especially effective is to usually typically get an early goal and then teams open up and then you can hit them on the counterattack. That's what we did under McInnes quite a lot when, you know, we were set up that way that we could just win possession and get the balls into McGinn, Hayes, Pollitt and, and break on teams at pace. And it just feels like we're not, again, like we're set up. We've we've spent the money in the summer to build a team to play the system. But for me, we just haven't got the right blend of the personnel. And then, as you say, like the, the matter of the, the lack of width is just really difficult to to comprehend because you are expecting your wing backs to get up and down and cover so many kilometers through the game. And then the problem there is that the midfield three that we have, I mean, sometimes it works, but then again, on on Sunday, especially with McGrath, Barron and, and Shinny, you know, Barron was doing like a lot of good work coming and taking the ball from the defenders and trying to get the ball moving. There were too many instances I felt where Shinny is like going almost to the byline to take the ball or McGrath going to the byline and the distances between the midfielders is just so great that you're not going to create any kind of intricate link-up players can have players sort of isolated looking for a pass, seeing no one available, and then, in all likelihood, going backwards to the defender or the goalkeeper. So there's not that, you know, there's not that um, kind of cohesion within the midfield to build our way forward. Or then they'll put the ball forward and, you know, Duke will back up into someone and fall over and act shocked when he doesn't get a free kick for it. Um, yeah, I mean, and the thing is, like, if that's all well and good if that's plan A, but I think I'm going to say what Graham has been saying quite a lot of, there should be a plan B if that doesn't work. And there's options on the bench to change things up in terms of setup and formation. But the manager just appears extremely reluctant to try it. And it makes you wonder, like, why is Ryan Duncan and why is Vinny Bajouin on the bench when they've got absolutely no chance of playing? Yeah, and this is the thing, is that it's almost like we need to have like two different preferred setups one is the preferred setup when you play at home against teams like and i hate using that phrase because it sounds incredibly disrespectful sometimes but when you play against a ross county when you play against a st johnston when you play against a livingston when you play against a dundee or a kilmarnock which are all teams that are going to be coming up here um that have still to to to, to play at Pataudry, you have to find a way to dominate those games and to get on the front foot against those teams and play with a bit of panache and play with a bit of style as well, I think, especially in front of your home fans. We've, I think we've spoken about this before. I know that Graham's very much of the view that he doesn't care too much about the style. It's just about results. But I think when it's your own paying public, I think you've also got a little bit of a duty to entertain at the same time if you can. Away from home, I couldn't give a monkey about how you decide to play away from home. 
if you decide to shithouse your way on the road, counterattack, whatever, fine. You've got no obligation there, in my eyes, to kind of present an entertaining brand of football to the to the away support uh, to the to the the home team in that instance. Um, we've got to get this balance right, haven't we? Because otherwise, it's going to be far too easy for teams to come up to Pataudry and just sit in. If they don't count, if they don't attack you, then you've got nothing to counter against, and it becomes incredibly difficult with the way we're playing just now to see how you break teams down who came up who come up here and play with five or f- three at the back and uh, and sit in. It's, it's it's very difficult to see how you manage that. What I will say regarding Graham's philosophy, if that's not too grand a word <laughs> to use, uh, I think it is evolving much like his taste in beer, you know, like he went from being just a tenants Carling kind of guy to three drinking, points on a Saturday to drinking apple sours beers. Yeah, true. Um, he did comment a number of occasions when we'd be firing the ball just straight at play or firing the ball up long to, to one of the strikers. He was commenting quite frequently that this is shit. So yeah, okay. I think yeah, if he's his will to present himself as the man of pragmatism, and results are all that matters is maybe just a little bit of a facade. Um, and the thing is there, like, if you're just going to shell the ball along, I've said this before, if you're going to do that, then give yourself an option to bring on at least that can go ahead and do that sort of shithouse target man, win free kicks, win headers, blah, blah, blah. We don't have one of those. Well, maybe we do, but he's fucking murder as <laughs> all the evidence so far. If it's uh, if Habib Gay was the, was the option, I'm, I'm setting my stall here early. That boy is, yeah. Because uh, Sokler is not going to do it either. So it's just, and the thing is, like, they're like, we were like getting territory in their box, we were creating opportunities. We then take Sokler on for Devlin, but we actually didn't change the shape up at all because Polvara then went yeah. to right wing back. So we're so apps. Yeah. Dante Polvara, the poor guy, now playing right wing back, having, you know, come into the team and made a little bit of a role in that in that box to box player. No, no, defensive player. No, thank you very much. I want to stick Sokler kind of in where you're playing. So it's just this, this determination, no matter what, that no, this is how it's going to be. And it's not working. Like it, it's, it's worked a couple of times against Ross County, for sure. And it worked last season. But I think that was because we had a different blend of players with the players we have right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, we're relying on teams making mistakes for us to score. Like even yeah. the Miofsky chance, you know, um, when he fits it over, you know, there's some pretty rash defending. There's the overhead kick. That's a goalkeeper error. You know, and then we're talking about set pieces or those lethal long throw-ins that we've perfected over the last couple of weeks. Indeed. Um, let, let's just move on away from the shape because uh, I, I do think it's something they're going to have to seriously think about over the course of this international break about how we get this blend um, to work better, especially at home. I don't think... <clears throat> the Aberdeen fans aren't going to put up with that type of performance like, for, for long this season, especially if results <clears throat> aren't forthcoming either. In the defensive line... I actually thought the back three played well enough again on Sunday. They weren't really threatened so much. Saints had a, a decent amount of ball in that first half of what you might class as, in inverted commas, in inverted commas attempts. But none of them really particularly threatened Roos, I didn't think, in goal. It was another good performance, I thought, as well, from Slobodan Rubicic. Alongside Conor Barron, I thought Rubicic was probably my man of the match. I thought he was commanding in the air. Stuck to his task well. There was limited signs of any of that kind of rashness we've been seeing. He was even getting on the ball and playing it around with a level of confidence that we haven't really seen today. I felt he played well enough against uh, HJK as well in midweek. I think we spoke a little bit, a little bit last week, but do you think now we're we're starting to see 
more of the kind of player that you know we we hope we were getting with Slobodan Rubicic, and we can just continue to to work with him and developing him. If so, and if he continues in this vein, then he will actually turn out to be hopefully a, a decent piece of business. Um, as I said, I think last week, I think there's obviously been a commitment, both financially and in just in terms of belief from the manager and the recruitment department on Rubicic, because I think he could have easily been taken out of the firing line uh, based on his early performances. And I would agree. I think he's getting uh, better and better with with every with every passing game, and I've no doubt that the consistency of selection, uh, the partnership he's forging with both uh, Richard Jensen and Stefan Garterman, will be helping him a lot. I have seen a lot of praise from him. I would say that there was instances, especially in the first half, when the boy Jofcott, I think his name is would be kind of getting it about and maybe bullying him a little bit more than I'd like to see someone of Slobodan's dimensions being being so. Uh, so maybe he just like, needs to just learn to you know use his physicality a little bit more to stand up to strikers who are going to try and do that. But on the whole, I mean, I can't think of him doing anything that gave me a fear. Even when he did the drag back on Stevie May, I was like, <laughs> yes, yes, Ruby. <laughs> Let's I knew talk about Stevie May's haircut. I knew he was a ball playing centre back. I knew it. Stevie May's haircut. Yes, that long hair was hiding a not excellent hairline, as it turns out. A, a rapidly receding hairline. It turns yeah. out absolutely. Yeah. Um, it didn't make him any faster. It didn't make him any more aerodynamic. Anyway, it, it definitely didn't. Did it? Um, and it's the thing, isn't it? Like it feels now that the back three, which you know, after the Hearts game was probably where we were all sitting, holy shit, every time a team comes at us, we look as though we're going to concede goals. That now actually feels like it's kind of the part of the side that kind of feels like it's kind of gelled together reasonably well. And it, it, we're looking pretty decent, I think, in the back line, that's for sure at the moment. Yeah, we look very, we look secure. Um, I don't get the impression now that we're going to concede a huge number of goals. There's still, you know, uh, there's still times where there's going to be sloppy mistakes and such. I mean, there's a moment in this first half when, uh, you know, a couple of cross-field balls and then the ball ends up at the you know, number 16 with acres of space and needs Jensen to come over and cover. And you're kind of one bit wondering, well, how did that happen? So maybe still a little bit of work as far as communication um, and understanding where people need to be uh, during a, each phase of play. But yeah, on the whole, I'd say that the three of them, I mean, I think Garterman and Jensen, as I've said before, have settled into life very well. And Rubicic, contrary to what I thought maybe earlier in the season, uh, does appear to be coming up as a good investment. So yeah, more of that, please. And with his call-up to the Montenegro national side as well, that'll add a few extra pennies onto the Davy Dollar resale value, I assume, as well. So uh, hopefully all the very best for Ruby when he goes off. And how, how, do you think it goes, how do you think it goes down in Serbia when people decided to go play for Montenegro I don't think that's a massive issue is my general gut feel mm. I think it's if you go to other places that might be a bit more of a, a challenge I, I mean I, I'm not confessed to have the most sophisticated knowledge of that area and whatnot but yeah my understanding is that generally speaking not they don't tend to really get on that well given though they were both like the same country for a while um Anyway, let's not get into geopolitical... Yeah, uh, this is maybe not the week for it, is it? Definitely, definitely not. Um, Graeme, Sinead, Jamie McGrath, didn't really happen for either of them on Sunday afternoon. We just touched on it there, that it's now 2-1 to Jamie McGrath and the Gav versus Jamie McGrath stakes. 
for the season. I didn't really think it was any surprises to see them taking off when they were. I take your point that um, perhaps a little bit surprising that Shinny was hooked because uh, I think you're probably right in the sense that Robson does appear to have a little bit of the mechanicisms around him whereby it doesn't really matter how somebody's performing, they'll stay on anyway. Um, but on the other hand, Connor Barron was, again, I, I said it earlier on, probably up there with Rubesic, my man of the match. An impressive performance once again to add to his showings against Ross County. I feel he did well when he came off the bench against Hoyakar as well on Thursday. And on one next, you know, there's an argument there to be made that he was unlucky not to start against Helsinki. Um, it's becoming hard for him. It's becoming hard, sorry, at the moment to make a case for him not to start. Yeah, and that's why I wasn't surprised that he did start against St. Johnston. Um, you know, the the way that last season went with Connor Barron was just so regrettable and there's you know there's things that you know are out of our hands like him getting injured in in pre-season missing a big chunk of the first half of the season but then and never really got going once he came back in and obviously there was all the the chat around him uh not signing an extension and rumor and innuendo but why that might have been uh issues with the manager or whatever and then even when robson came in he didn't really feature all that often and i think he became a bit of a a forgotten man as such when you do bring Clarkson and you're thinking well if Leighton Clarkson's here then Connor Barron's game time is going to be very limited because of how good Clarkson is and how much we've invested in in getting him into the club and I assume the desire to use Aberdeen as a shop window to then make some huge money on Leighton Clarkson and then you have like obviously Shinny who does a different role and we've Robson has a lot of belief in Pulvana we've obviously then gone ahead and got Jay McGrathen. So I did see Connor Barron truthfully becoming just a bit part player of the season, um, probably winding down his contract until the summer. And then, you know, we'll see where he goes. The The recovery, the turnaround has been very, very pleasant for me to see because I thought Connor looked excellent when he first came into the team. A real breath of fresh air, a real highlight in terms of quality that we'd brought through from the Youth Academy. So to see him come back and be so determined to get his foot on the ball, not shirk anything and try and get the game going and try and get the team up the park, he's becoming a real asset once again. And it's great to see. It's testament that, you know, him playing does mean that Leighton Clarkson sits on the bench. The nice thing I found is that when Clarkson came on for the first time, probably since they've both been here, I thought they I thought they complemented each other very nicely and gives us the option that we can actually play perhaps both of them uh, going forward from the start. Which is, of course, has been the, the biggest challenge I think we found. And this was also the biggest problem that came around from the corner Baron resurgence was how you managed to get Baron and Clarkson into the same team at the same time. Um, and uh, you're right. I think we kind of saw a little bit of how that could potentially work on <clears throat> on Sunday afternoon, it's one of those. It's like it's it also is the situation where you scream out and go, "Well, moving to something like a four-two-three-one might help you to be able to do that and play Clarkson more as a number ten advance, play Barron alongside someone like Graham Shinney. I think Barron is much more likely to be able to kind of play the Ramadani type role in terms of harrying players. He's got that little bit more about him, with a little bit more bite in the midfield, but he's also the guy who's willing to get on the ball and 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 make passes and try to make something happen. It didn't always come off at the weekend. Um, there was a couple of times his there was a couple of times his range was just a little bit off. I don't think the conditions maybe necessarily helped either. But then he, he is the one, he's the only one who plays that incisive pass through from Miofsky where he should do better. 
that eventually you know breaks through some lines. So it'll be really interesting to see again if Robson can kind of solve this conundrum of how you play or how you attempt to get Baron and Clarkson into the same team. I think you can do four two three one for sure. I think you can do like a four four two diamond mm-hmm. with maybe Baron as the sort of screen uh, quarterback kind of type, or maybe even Leighton Clarkson there, and then you have one of them with Shinny and. Stick a McGrath or a Pulvara further up the park. Um, there is there's oh, options. I hate, I hate I can diamonds see. because I hate diamonds because of the lack of width it gives you. But then, well, fuck me, <laughs> there's, no, there's no width going on at the moment <laughs> anyway. So, um, fuck it, why not? Overload the midfield. That's overload the center. Indeed, indeed. Um, what we're talking about the kind of midfield area, um, and in particular, kind of just the performance at the weekend. Um, always good to get people joining in with some clips on speak pipe leave us a couple of voice notes about how you think the performance has gone people still not quite seeming to to get a hold of this and um, when we tweet this out on twitter and say leave us your thoughts here and we post the link to speak pipe it means go to speak pipe and leave a voice note for us so here is um bobby's soggy biscuit with his thoughts on the game on a sunday yeah another game where we we take 45 minutes before we even get on the front foot first half was terrible just so poor in possession nothing really he, he talks Barry talks about wanting to break and play between the lines but he just we never do it, it goes goes to Garton minute right centre half goes to Jensen left centre half and it's a, a percentage ball clipped into the channel Connor Barron's the only one in that first half looking to try and get the ball on the ground and play it but massive difference with Clarkson and Povara coming on second half you guys think there's maybe an opportunity there for that midfield three to play together give um, Shinny a bit of a break but yeah, it's just another day of missed chances and what ifs, I suppose. But uh, the chances to win it. But I'm looking at um, looking at it more of us not losing rather than us dropping two points, I suppose. Um, and Bojan Miowski, fuck knows what he's doing with that overhead kick. I'm pretty sure Leon Mike would have buried that. <laughs> We've just touched on it there. Maybe is there a? Ch- Hopefully, maybe there might be a chance for us to get. Um, Baron Clarkson into the team together. Maybe we did see a bit of that. And and Bobby's just touched on it there. You know the Milfsky chance at, at, at the end. I mean, for Milfsky and Duke again, it feels like another really thankless game for those two. Milfsky absolutely should have converted probably two chances in that second half. Maybe a third was ahead as well. He flashes past um, late on. Duke also cutting a frustrated figure again. We thought maybe the goal against Ross County would have got him going. It's not really happened. Nope. Um, <clears throat> the the chance on Thursday night where he, I mean, on one hand he's incredibly unlucky because he smashes it as hard as he can. And it just basically hits the goalkeeper in the face. He doesn't know anything about it. Um, but you're right. Last season he does something. He sits him down. He takes it round him. He'll just slide it past him. Whatever. I don't know. Um, but we spent money on two other strikers to sit on the bench and good money as well. I think you know probably the guts of between 600 and 800,000 pounds for these two to sit on the bench at the moment. I mean, Sokler obviously got some game time on Sunday. Is it now time to see if one of these other two can offer something else than what Duke's currently doing at the moment? (laughs) Ah, you mean Esther? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's incredibly... You know what? I, I get that there's an element of frustration about the way that we play, undoubtedly, but for me, Duke had sufficient opportunities to influence the game by receiving the ball on defeat or holding the ball up. And his hold-up play is just not there at all anymore. And the problem is that when he receives the ball, 
his only thought would appear to be I need to dribble past the nearest opponent and make something for myself. And it's almost like he's forgotten that football is a team game and he has teammates who are available to pass to him or he's available to uh, to pass the ball to. So I'm and I'm I'm at, kind of at the end of my rope with his theatrics. It's getting a little bit too much, even for me as an Aberdeen fan who loved watching Lee Miller. <laughs> um, so I'd find it hard to justify his continued selection. If he goes, maybe it's come at a good time because if he goes away with Cape Verde and gets a couple of goals, then maybe that's something that can like spark him once again. If we were, say, playing our next game next weekend, I'd be saying, let's give Esther Sokler a chance because, like you say, we've spent money on these guys, we've invested them. We have an excellent young striking prospect in our academy who we've now sent on loan to Kelty Hearts to get game time because he can't get an opportunity because of these two guys that we've come in. So if you're going to spend the money, you're going to have them there on the bench. Let's find out if there's anything to them. And yeah, you can't, for me, you can't continue justify Duke's selection. Finney Bajau made the bench on Sunday, which was, I think, a surprise to everybody when the team lines came out. Um, given the way the game panned out, I mean, I probably know the answer this already, but were you surprised he wasn't given an opportunity given he's pretty much the only natural wide player that we have available to us now? No. <laughs> I'm genuinely shocked to learn that he was on the bench. Um, was I surprised he didn't come on the pitch? Absolutely not. I'm actually surprised he was even on the bench, named, but actually just like just told, yeah, just hang about, get the get the oranges sliced up in the change in the changing draft time, please. Um, no, I was not surprised. I mean, I think I'll probably just say this for Graham's sake since he's not here. But yeah, in a game like that, when you're not creating nothing, what's the worst that could happen? Bringing him on, really? That was kind of what my feeling was at the weekend. Was like, well, if there was ever a time to decide, you know what, give him a bash, it was it was Sunday afternoon. And um, yeah, I'd be if I was Vinny, I'd be looking for like a trade or something. <laughs> yeah, I think you might need to be at this rate. Um, when you say uh, trade, do you mean a move to another club in an American <laughs> sports style, or do you mean a trade as in becoming a oh, joiner? Honestly, just yeah, get himself a new hobby for the next few months, sir. Yeah, if he can learn a new skill, something like that, learn a new language. I don't know because yeah, that, that guy's not getting anywhere near the, the pitch happening, which is yeah. You know what? I, I don't think I'm as far um, entrenched as maybe Graham as maybe others are as far as like what he did during his first what year or 18 months. Uh, he frustrated me quite a lot as well. But then, yeah, when you're seeing Duke putting the kind of performance that he's playing in right now, like, you know, how can you how can you watch that and just say, we're going to stick with this and there's no chance this guy's getting who again is another one we've sunk a lot of money into. And he's just sitting on the bench or in the stands doing doing nothing. I think that's the biggest issue with the German thing, isn't it? Is we know that there's been a significant amount of money invested in him. So for him just to be sitting there doing nothing, especially in a game like that, where you just you're crying out for somebody to be able to come on and do something, it's just so frustrating. Um so back on the manager, he certainly did enough with the performance in Germany, then the results against Ross County and at Mordor, but the performances against Hoyakar and against St. Johnston, you can just again see those little rumblings of discontent just starting to bubble under the surface once again, can't you? Um, you can see it, and if you're in the stadium, you can hear it uh, more more critically, perhaps. Um, it's just and it's just 
everyone, not everyone, don't speak for everyone, but it's a lot of the same rumblings and uh, complaints that we've talked about tonight of just, just being so stuck to one way of playing, one formation, one set of players, no matter what. And the yeah, the issue is going to be that cause like, if we play like that and we win games, people will not care about the way we play. But if you're going to put in points like that against Johnston at home, 12th place, and you're coming away with nil-nil draws, people are not going to be happy with it. Um, so for me, he needs to try and figure out a new way of playing at home that is more progressive, that is more on the front foot. And like I say, so often we're depending on teams making mistakes for us to score. And we have better players than that. So he has to try and figure out a way to to make Aberdeen the more on the front foot team than we are right now. Because right now it's like as I say, we are a counter-attacking team against teams who are not set up to come at us full all guns blazing. And we're just playing into so many teams' hands. All in all, then, Gav, we're going to this international break, sitting in eighth spot, level on points with Hibs in seventh, two points off Hearts and four, six behind Sevco and St. Mirren, who are tied in third place together on 15 points from our eight played one draw uh, one two drawn three lost three it's those draws again that are killing us isn't it i mean if, even if you convert olivia away in st johnson home we'd be sitting comfortably in third spot at the moment it does feel like the two league games when we come back after the break are going to be huge we've got dundee at home then we face kelly away kelly's kind of early season form seems to have drifted already hearts then are facing Celtic and Rangers back to back and Hibs then face Rangers and Celtic back to back on those weeks so it's a real opportunity in these two games to try and get up above the Edinburgh sides who you would imagine come the end of the season are, are going to be more than more than likely to be the teams who we are competing with if we want to get back into to European football again when I look at those results and think that if we'd won that game, we'd have been in the fourth place. All I'm thinking is that this is going to be another low point scoring season in the, <laughs> in the Scottish Cinch Premiership. Jeez, oh. Um, yeah, I mean, St. Johnson was a crucial game. and It was, We've, yeah. we've blown it. So it makes these next two games, like you say, against Dundee and Kilmarnock, the Derek and Tony <laughs> tag team, demolition, I don't know, Legion of Doom. Legion of Doom, I would have said, yeah. It makes it... Um, very important because yeah, we've we're, we've lost ground on, you know, it's not insurmountable by any stretch of the imagination, and we should have been ahead of them uh, at this point. But yeah, these teams, Hearts, Hibs, Hibs seem to have got a little bit of a spark with the new manager, which is regrettable. Um, Hearts, you know, Hearts, Hearts, I mean, they'll carry on plugging away. I'm sure, getting Naismith results when he needs it, so he can stay in the job. <laughs> But yes, at minimum, I suppose they've lost it at the weekend to Rangers, but you know, they've been impressive as well. Yeah, we need to be we need to get ourselves up the table. And we need to get that done pronto because otherwise, you know, that's just we could just end up getting stuck in this middle of the road kind of nothing season. And the issue is that we just don't appear to be dealing with this European uh Thursday, Sunday thing at all well. And that's gonna kinda continue until you know what, December. So we need to figure out a way to approach that as well. Yeah, I guess if you want to play devil's advocate a bit, you'd probably look to the, the two league fixtures, Rangers away, St. Johnson at home. You'd probably say if we came away from those two fixtures with four points, you'd probably bitten people's hands off before those two games. It's kind of what we come away from in the wrong way. Like you would have expected to hopefully get a point at Ibrox and then beat St. Johnson at home. But for me, that argument doesn't really wash because I look at that and go, brilliant, you've managed to pick up a win at Ibrox. 
you need to now go home and ram home that like that that run of form and get the three points against St Johnson be six points up rather than three or four that you might have hoped you would have been. Yeah, it's it's not that football cliche that us not beating Johnson undoes all the good work at Ibrox, but it's just it's incredibly frustrating just because it it does just take away that momentum we started to build, especially in the domestic game, um, negating also the game against against Helsinki. Notice I'm not calling them Hoyaka because um, I don't want to be accused of mispronouncing it. Just football hipsters here. Uh, but the other part from that as well is that you're right, that we've we've kind of struggled the Thursday-Sunday thing, and I think that's understandable. Um, but what you want to be in a situation of being able to do there, though, is if we, if we had come away from the week, the game on Sunday, with, you know, a two-goal winning margin, we would have been sitting in third place. Uh, sorry, we would have been sitting in fourth place this weekend, level uh, leveling points with with Hearts, who, okay, had a little bit of Thursday, Sundays to do, but haven't had to do that for the last last month or so. And we've not been great, really, throughout the season so far. We we had a really poor start to the campaign. Then you'd kind of, if you could have just got yourself into fourth, going into the international break, I think it would have really put down a bit of a marker as well that actually, you know what, we've been able to just about cope with the Thursday, Sunday thing. We've got ourselves in a position where I still think no matter how rank I think they are, I think Hearts and Hibs will be the teams who will end up being in and around come the end of the season. Um, if you were then in a position where you were still kind of leveling points with them, that, that puts down like a psychological marker as well, I think. And that also is a little bit of a... It's just the frustrating part, again, about Sunday because on paper... Um, St. Johnson are the worst team in the league. So to come away with a nil-nil draw is just incredibly, incredibly disappointing. Um, anyway, on that note, quickly. I think, I think I've just got... There were three moments in the game that set the tone for me when I knew I was in for a long afternoon. One was when the St. Johnson goalkeeper from a goal kick shanked the ball out into the main stand and the closest St. Johnson player to the ball applauded his effort. <laughs> there was a moment in a space of roughly seven seconds when Jamie McGrath let the ball slip from under his feet twice and then when Chris Kane came on the pitch I believe that was Chris Kane's first appearance of the season been injured and missed a big chunk of preseason. and boy oh boy could you tell it this motherfucker waddling on the pitch looking Wait, are like are we talking about Kane or Chris Kane? Oh, Chris Kane we're talking about <laughs> This motherfucker comes waddling on the pitch, looking like he's got the exact same diet and training regiment as Eddie Kingston. <laughs> and, and then he pulls off the two slowest stepovers I've ever seen a professional footballer pull off, which still somehow beat Richard Jensen. And then he fires the ball in for Stevie May to obviously not be in the right place. Um, that was, yeah, a game just entirely devoid of quality. And yeah, a draw was probably fair enough. Topped on. Didn't do the poll because I frankly couldn't be arsed. Yeah, Connor Barron. He's the one that tried to make things happen. I, I'd have said Barron as well, I think, to be fair. Um, I thought Rubizic did well as well, but I'm going to go Connor Barron. On that note, actually, I would have made Connor Barron man of the match against Helsinki as well, which probably says a lot because he was only on for about 20 minutes. Yeah, I would probably agree as well, actually, but that was trying to think if there was anyone else I would have even considered doing. Um, yeah, probably Connor Barron as well. There we go. Two in a week. Two in a week for Connor. Um, right, will we move on? Yes, please. On news maybe 24 this week, with all eyes on the game against Hoykar on Thursday, very little out of the club this week, which means we can 
move on to the Quines, a trip to Dundee United on Sunday afternoon for Clint Lancaster's side, looking to get back on track, brother, after a run of three consecutive defeats to Hibs twice and to Celtic. Lancaster recalling Ailey Shore, Maddie Finney and Bailey Hutchinson into the starting lineup. And there were familiar faces in the United lineup with ex-Dons, Johan Fraser and Natasha Bruce starting for the Tangerines. And it was the hosts who took the lead on 18 minutes. Cowper firing in a free kick from the edge of the penalty box, high into the top corner past Annalisa McCann. And that's how it stayed until the break. The sides coming back out after halftime under a deluge of rain in the city of Discovery and the Quines were out on the front foot. Their bright start got just rewards with Hutchison bursting into the box and she cut inside a defender before curling a really, really fine strike past Wilson in the United goals. Good start to the second half, though, wasn't to last. Ex-Don Johan Fraser picking the ball up on the right flank. Her curling effort evaded me McCann as it flew in at the far post. Chloe Gover came close to forcing a second Don's equaliser just a couple of minutes later, but Wilson, an emergency loan in the United goals from Hibs, somehow clawed it back before United made it three just on the hour mark. Fraser again at the centre of things. Her through ball finding Smith, who squared for Todd to tap home. The Quines, though, did manage to get themselves back into the game. Gover hitting the bar before both Stuart and Shore had headers missing the target. Before Ailey Shore did set up a grandstand finish with a low shot into the bottom corner of the United goal with just eight minutes remaining on the clock. And Aberdeen thought they should have had a penalty in the final minute. Hutchison appearing to be brought down in the box, nothing doing before the Quines then thought they'd equalise with what was the last kick of the ball as Stuart knocked, Stuart knocked home after Shore's shot had been spilled by Wilson, but the flag was up. Full-time finished 3-2 to United and manager Clint Lancaster sent off after the final whistle for his protestations about the penalty kick as well. Love to see it. The Dons remaining in seventh spot in SWPL1. This Sunday at the Balmoral, it is the visit of champions Glasgow City. On to the young team. Young team with a 4-1 defeat to Kilmarnock at Rugby Park on Friday afternoon. The Dons having to travel light for this one with only three outfield options available from the bench. And the Dons did take an early lead. Fletcher Boyd scoring after just five minutes before a strong home side began to take hold of the game. Burke, I don't think it's Chris Burke. Who knows? Maybe it was. Equaliser for Kilmarnock just before the half-hour mark. Kelly then making it 2-1 on 38 minutes as the ball eventually broke kindly for the home side after a set piece and the ball was prodded home from six yards. And then it was three just after the break. Daniel, I've written Vevlin. That can't be right. It must be Devlin. Surely Daniel Devlin? Danny Devlin. Double, D, double Diz. Making it three just after the break as he cut back to net before Craig then made it four just a couple of minutes later. That's how it stayed. Next up, a trip to Bells Hill. God help them, on Friday to take on Caledonian Braves in the Scottish Youth Cup. On to Lone Watch, another start at right back for Kieran Nguyenia at Partick Thistle. And another 90 minutes for the young man in a game for the ages as Park Thistle drew 0-0 with ICT in Inverness. Evan Towler, Montrose another week, another squad missed for Evan as Montrose beat Aloha by two goals to one at Lynx Park in League One. I am going to presume this is an injury issue but there's nothing available anywhere to confirm it. He hasn't played since he scored a winning penalty in the League Cup group stage tie with Cowdenbeath back in July. Alfie Bavage at Kelty Hart started, played the full 90 minutes, got his first ever senior goal. Well done, Alfie, as Kelty Hart's routed Edinburgh City by four goals to one in League One. That, of course, Edinburgh's first game since dispatching with Don's legend, Alan Mabry from the manager's hot seat. Kelty now up to fourth in League One. Aaron Reid, 
coming off the bench for Peterhead in the last four minutes. I think that might have been time-wasting. As Peterhead's decent start to the campaign continued with a 3-1 win over Forfer Ooh. at Station Park. The Blue Toon, two points clear of the Greg Wildless Dumbarton at the top of the table. And then, as everybody knows, the weekend was fucking grim when it came to weather. So Liam Harvey, Blair McKenzie, no game for Elgin City. Uh, their home fixture with Stenhouse Muir fell victim to the rain. Although in the Highland League, Dylan Lobbin and Adam, Adam Emsley for Martin United. Lobbin with a start, Emsley on the bench. As per usual, I've no idea if either of them lasted. The game came off because the Martin social media presence is fucking terrible. But Martin did see off the can-cans of Forest by two goals to nil in the Highland League. Finlay Murray, no game for him for Turry United as their clash with Rothis was called off on Saturday morning. Kevin Hanrati at Bucky, no match for Bucky. Their game against Brecon City was postponed due to rain. Jaden Richardson, an unused substitute to Stockport County, beat Doncaster Rovers by one goal to nil in League Two down south. And then Anthony Stewart for the Milton Keynes Dons. Played the full 90. From what I can see, didn't have any involvement in any comical goals this week, unlike last, but he did rack up the lowest match rating of anybody who played the full 90 minutes as the Dons of a Milton Keynes variety were beaten by two goals to one by Gillingham in League Two. And I was shared, uh, Grant Heath, thank you for this. I don't know if he just has a sense check every weekend for anyone talking about Anthony Stewart, but there was a quote from a, a tweet, sorry, from an uh, MK Dons fan who did say that he would take Tommy Smith or Jack Tucker, I don't know who they are, back in that defence over Anthony Stewart, a calamity. So there we go. Looks like it's going well. What do this week, Gav? Or this half even? Uh, well, on that bombshell. Let's Indeed. go to a break. Let's go to a break. Let's do it. This episode of the APZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Doan Co. on Belmont Street, Aberdeen. Enjoy freshly topped donuts, coffee, milkshakes, soup, pies, bagels, and much, much more available every day of the week. Come along and enjoy their daily deals such as black coffee and a mini donut for just £1 or a bagel and a soft drink for only a fiver. Join the guys seven days a week on Belmont Street between 8 and 8 and available 24-7 at yourdonutshop.com. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. And before we move on to my favorite game with Michael Grant, just a quick shout out to those of you who continue to make your contributions to the Beer and Coffee Fund. Thank you. Thank you all. And in the virtual sense, to Cam Loon. Cam Loon. Stuart McIntosh. Stu McIntosh. And Grant Stephen. Grant Stephen. Thank you very much. We see you, we acknowledge you, your bread is appreciated. Uh, those of you who also shouted us a pint in person on Thursday evening, that is also much appreciated as well. If you would like to keep us help fueled in beers or coffees, head on over to ko-fi.com forward slash ABZ. Football podcast link is in the description. Shout us that beer or coffee. It is much appreciated. So, Gav, with no games to look forward to, this week, we caught up with the Times' Scottish football correspondent, Will Kent Dandy, Michael Grant. First of all, we'll have a quick chat about the release of a revised and updated version of his absolutely stonking book, Fergie Rises. That new edition came out last Thursday. I'd strongly recommend getting a hold of it if you can. And then we move on to talk about what is effectively the latest instalment of our round of my favourite game. Michael talks us through his favourite Aberdeen game, 
It's Aberdeen 4, St. Johnston 0 from the Coca-Cola Cup semi-final in 2014 at Tynecastle. And just before we move on to the segment, this was recorded ahead of the sad news that broke uh, over the course of the weekend about Sir Alex Ferguson's uh, wife, Lady Cathy Ferguson, uh, sadly dying over the course of the weekend. So we didn't get a chance to talk about that. But um, of course, Gav, as always with these things, thoughts with the the, the family and with Sir Alex at what will be obviously a very difficult time. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, you could uh, tell from the, the pretty fantastic documentary on Alex Ferguson on... I can't remember what streaming service it's on straight away. Netflix or Amazon. Amazon. Um, detailing, you know, obviously what happened with Alex with um, his health and that health scare a few years back and the fantastic uh, history about his time at Aberdeen, his time growing up in Glasgow um, at Rangers and then on Manchester United. Um, just what a, a rock for him that uh, that Cathy was. So no doubt that they'll be, she'll be sorely missed Uh by Strax and her family. And yeah, like you say, just condolences to, to Alex, to Sir Alex. Absolutely. So here to talk about his book, Fergie Rises, and to talk my favourite game, it is Michael Grant. Michael Grant, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. A pleasure to have you with us. How's things? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, enjoy the show, like listen to it. So I'm uh, privileged to be on. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So listen, before we get started to talk about your favourite game. Um, let's have a, a quick chat about the brand new, fully revised and updated release of Fergie Rises, where you tell the tale of Sir Alex Ferguson's time at Aberdeen. Now, the updated version came out last week. It's now available in all of your usual haunts, probably some bad bookshops as well, some good ones as well. Um, the first edition was obviously released in 2014, um, but the update now takes into account kind of some of the events that have transpired since, including obviously the sad loss of Neil Cooper, right the way up to the 40th anniversary of our triumph in Gothenburg and the greats being bestowed with the freedom of the city across that memorable weekend from May just past. And now I've, I've said it before on Twitter, um, both on the podcast as well, and this was before we'd had any sort of connection at all that the original book is probably one of my favorite books related to football not just about Aberdeen not just about Fergie but just across the board so was it an enjoyable experience for you just to get a chance to revisit that the original again and kind of make those revisions and updates for this one uh it, it was yeah uh I'll, I'll be honest I had never read the book again after writing it because I was just I thought you know it'll irritate me and it'll niggle at me that things could have been better and worded better or whatever and there was a one or two little you know factual tweaks thankfully pretty minor um but I thought I'm, I'm just never going to read it again until you know until I'm in my dotage um so yeah I did have to go through the whole book again with a fine tooth comb and yeah I was I was actually quite pleasantly surprised by not being appalled by my own writing you know um but and I, and to be honest the publishers uh, Polaris they were great they said you don't need to do make any changes to it if you want we're happy to just reprint it us uh, in this kind of new paperback and new cover and so on but I thought as you said, uh, Gary, I thought there was enough things I wanted to get into it. You know, uh, certainly the the loss of uh, Neil Cooper was was really the most kind of profound one. You know, and then I thought, well, there have been other things. Obviously, the, the book is really a kind of closed chapter. You know, a closed chapter in Aberdeen's history from seventy eight to eighty six. So, you know, a couple of pals we saw. Well, how could you update it? Nothing's happened since then. You know, but but you know, losing. Uh, Tati Cooper was was profound, obviously, and I wanted to get in the fact that 
Fergie had come back up for the opening of Cormac Park and that we'd now had the statue to Fergie outside the ground, he'd come back for that. And then, as you say, because the 40th anniversary celebrations were quite a big deal for the club and for the city, I thought it was quite nice to get that into, you know. So, yeah, I think it was worthwhile kind of adding on a, a, an additional chapter at the end just to kind of bring the story up to date. Yeah, and it's it's one of the things as well I've always loved about the book was the fact, the two, two main things. One, obviously, is... The fact is told from the perspective of an Aberdeen fan. So a lot of the times when you read books about Fergie in particular, they often come via the prism of looking through his career very much through English football, you know, what he did at Manchester United. And Aberdeen often kind of sometimes feels a little bit of a footnote. And you pick up on it yourself, I think, in the, the documentary that came out as well, where Aberdeen, you know, we get like almost a, it kind of feels like <laughs> a five-minute throwaway bit. And it's always like, God, you could do an entire feature film on just the time at Aberdeen not just a throwaway five minutes and then B and I think this is the key thing I've always really enjoyed about the book itself is it hones in really clearly on the idea that the premise that while in retrospect now Aberdeen were of course fortunate to have him with us for that eight years but realistically at the time Fergie was lucky himself to even get the Aberdeen job he was, and I mean, I, I I was able to write that, you know, with a feeling of authenticity because I remembered it, you know. I, I remember in 78, I would have only been, uh, well, I was 10, or in fact, 9, you know. But I do remember that kind of sense that, you know, Aberdeen were kind of high-flying at the time, you know, been runners-up and everything under Billy McNeil the season before, talented squad, you know, players going to the World Cup and all that sort of stuff, and... And Fergie obviously had come from St Mirren and, you know, been sacked by St Mirren under a little bit of a cloud. His team had uh, kind of soared into the Premier League, but then kind of struggled a little bit in the top flight. And Aberdeen had been quite comfortable against St Mirren that, that season before Fergie joined. So, and, and you know that thing as well, Gary, the kind of whole Aberdeen thing about, you know, Aberdeen, Aberdeen, Aberdonians and Glaswegians have got their views about each other, haven't they? You know, and I think the view of Fergie a little bit was that he was a bit of a kind of, you know, Glasgow tearaway, and you know, just very, very rough around the edges, and and really did have a lot to prove, and he did have a lot to prove. There's no question about it. Um, I think it's fair to say that over the the following few years, the the dynamic changed a little bit and we were a little bit more lucky to have him than the other way around, you know, but, but yeah, that's, that is the way it was at the beginning, you know? Yeah. I think sometimes like it's lost now, you know, in that, in the, the annals of time, because of what he went on to achieve, not just with Aberdeen, but then at Manchester United as well, was that I think a lot of people from outside the Aberdeen bubble or outside the Scottish football bubble in particular, were looking and go, God, Aberdeen were so lucky to have him. And it's like, well, yes, but as you say, you know, at the time he was dead fortunate to, to pick up a, a gig like the Aberdeen one at the time. I mean, it's fascinating to know how well Aberdeen would have done with, with somebody else in '78. You know, I mean, there's, listen, it's not a debate. They would, there's no way they would have achieved the European stuff and the, you know, certainly three titles and uh, whatever it was, three, four Scottish Cups. You know, um, but they might have got something. You know, yeah. because it was such a good squad. You know, it was a squad that was capable, but it was knocking on the door in terms of uh, challenging the old firm. So I, I'd imagine that if um, one of the other contenders to replace McNeil had come in, they, they, we would still have won something, you know? Yeah. There's another, uh, there's a hugely important kind of human element as well that frames the book, I've always thought. The kind of way that the book reflects a lot on the losses that Fergie suffered in his time at Aberdeen, you know, in terms of, you know, the loss of his father in 1979, where he's also going through a really difficult time with the tribunal at St Mirren, undergoing a sticky time to the start of his Aberdeen career as well. And then, 
also touches a lot about you know the loss of Jock Steen for who Fergie obviously you know um, he acted as a great mentor to Fergie. It touches on really well, I think, the book just in terms of how those losses in particular, I think, at that point in his life really shaped him as an individual first, but then as a manager as well. Yeah, I mean, you have to remember how young he was when he came to Aberdeen, uh, thirty-seven or something like that. You know, when it, when when he took the job, I mean, he was. You know, he was barely older than the kind of senior members of the squad, really. You know, he yeah. was very much a, a training ground manager. He looked the part on the training ground and all that sort of stuff, the tracks on. I mean, he was almost indistinguishable from some of the senior players. Um, so at that point in your life, you are still learning and growing and, you know, going through life experiences and, you know, obviously losing a parent is a pretty profound one. Um, you know, his kids grew up in those years that he was at Aberdeen, you know, he he personally was transformed from just another football manager into this really significant f- f- uh, figure in Scottish life, in Scottish society, you know. he His his profile just absolutely soared in those eight years to the point that he'd managed Scotland and was, and was suitable to be the Man United manager, you know. So, uh, yeah, he, he certainly grew massively in, in the eight years he was at Pataudry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's a great opportune time, I think, for the book to have come back out again in, in the new format because obviously it's the run up to Christmas. Um, <laughs> so a great stalking for, for a lot of people. Um, as I said, the original is still absolutely one of my favourite books of all time, just on the sheer topic of football, let alone about being uh, related to Aberdeen. And it really bookends, pardon the pun, uh, what's been a fantastic year of celebrations as far as that's concerned, which are obviously going to continue um, in November as well, there's the um, the celebratory dinner and the 40th anniversary celebrations for the European Super Cup um, triumph and also celebrating uh, what would have been Neil Cooper's 60th birthday as well this year. So absolutely, I would absolutely encourage anyone who's not read it yet, go out, buy it. It was released last week again. Go and get it, buy it for somebody who's a Aberdeen fan, maybe not an Aberdeen fan, whatever. It's a great read, Michael. Um, all the very best with it when it goes out now. But then... Moving on to another topic, when we spoke about coming on, we thought it would make sense as well just to introduce you to the My Favourite Game segment. And despite the era we've just spoken about, you've picked a game from a much more contemporaneous time. Um, St Johnston Hill, Aberdeen 4 from the 1st of February 2014 at Tynecastle in the League Cup semi-final. We just touched on it there. You'll be nine years old when the Fergie walks in the door at, at AFC. So why this one? Well, you know, this is a, a kind of pathetic attempt to get down with the kids, really, because I thought <laughs> it, it would be really bloody predictable if I kind of come trotting along with something from the 80s, you know. And, and uh, you know, uh, uh, and also I know that one of your criteria for this is not to be obvious, you know. So don't, don't pick Gothenburg and don't pick Bayern Munich. And, and uh I mean, obviously, you know, th- those are my favourites and, and and the cup finals that we won back then and, the, you know, league deciders and so on. Um, but I thought, well, no, I, I will bring it forward because um, I, I would like to think that this this game would kind of immediately kind of lift and warm the hearts of all Aberdeen fans because it was a really kind of special day, you know, and it, I think most of your listeners would, well, have either been there or, or certainly remember it vividly because it was uh, a, a pretty... Uh, I, I kind of saw it as a bit of a show of strength from Aberdeen that day, you know, really in terms of the size of the support that took over Tynecastle and um, just the ease of the victory. And I would argue that after years of mediocrity, really, for the team, that that was the one where we thought, OK, maybe there really is something happening here because, um, 
you know, I, I look back, it was, I think, it, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was the first cup final we've been to for 14 years. That, yeah. that, that, that got us to our first cup final for 14 years. From 2000 to, from 2000 to 2008, we didn't reach a semi-final in either cup, which is just staggering, really, you know? Yeah. Um, and we were going out to Queen's Park and East Fife and, and, and kind of nonsense like that, you know? Um, so I, I do remember the kind of tension there was at Tynecastle that day about whether we would be able to, to get the job done. But, um, yeah, it, it turned out to be, a, I think, a really kind of magical afternoon. It really did. Can you remember, were you on duty? This afternoon, or no, you, no, no, no. I was very, I was very much not on duty. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Uh, because, um, I, I, yeah, I met uh, my, my boys were at the game, but I was in the pub for about three hours beforehand, you know. And and I don't know, Gary, what your experience was like that day, but I got off a train at Haymarket at twelve, and already the the place was absolutely heaving with Don's fans. And to say that some were kind of already showing their you know, showing their uh, blood alcohol levels would be would be putting it mildly. I mean, there was guys unsteady on their feet. There was guys sitting down against walls. And all. This was 12 o'clock. You know, I thought, my God, what are we going to get here? It's going to be magic, you know? Yes, um, it, it rings I, a I, bell. I, I, I don't know how many of the supporters that day, I, I, I don't know, what, what do we have, 12, 14,000, something like that. I'm not sure how many of them would have passed a breathalyzer, to be honest with you, but it, it, it just made for a fantastic atmosphere. You know? uh, it's up there, I think, for me, with one of the best atmospheres I've ever been at from an Aberdeen fans perspective I mean the final was amazing when there was that number of people but the semi-final the atmosphere I just felt was far superior to and I think Tynecastle lends itself to that obviously we all know how good a ground Tynecastle is from an atmosphere perspective I mean I remember vividly as well Graham obviously one of the co-hosts on the show his brother used to stay literally around the corner from Tynecastle um, <laughs> so we yeah. plowed down the early doors in the train in his brothers um, for a, a big old session before then try to pile around to the, to the ground and I remember we missed we actually missed the Johnny Hayes goal, um, which I don't think we would be the only ones. I just remember coming up the stands, uh, up the stairs, after getting through the turnstiles, and a massive roar went up. And you know, you have that moment as an Aberdeen fan, you think, you can't, we can't be fucking 1-0 down already, surely, <laughs> surely not. And then realising that's too loud to have been the St. Johnston fans, and then getting up actually into the to the, to the ground and realising we were one up at that, at that point. But just jumping back a bit, you're right. I mean, it's, it's the first time we're aiming to try and win a semi-final for the first time since the year 2000. We'd obviously got ourselves into the semi-final by navigating our way eventually past Alo Athletic on penalty kicks. Um, a game that lives long in the memory of my now wife. I uh, took her to that when we are just going out and she'd never been back to a game of football since. I don't blame her after that one. Uh, convincing 5-0 win over Falkirk and then... Also, another another really famous win, the ten the the ten man win over Motherwell went for a part by two goals to nil in, in October of twenty thirteen. Um, yeah. And you just touched on it, huge Aberdeen support down in Edinburgh for this one. And I think as well there was that real sense of anticipation, wasn't it? Because both sides of Glasgow were already out of the League Cup by this point as well. So you had ourselves and St Johnson in one semi final, was Hearts and Cali Thistle, and the other one at Easter Road the next afternoon. So you could even just sense that. All four teams, in particular the three Premiership teams, as, as it was at the time, were really fancying their chances of, of going on to to lift the trophy this time. Oh, a hundred percent, and and that added to the anticipation, and it, it added to the euphoria when the game unfolded the way it did. But it also added to the tension <laughs> ahead of that, and the nervousness, and and that feeling that you alluded to there of you know, are we going to fuck this up again? You know, um, funny enough, I had exact, almost exactly the same experience of you in terms of the Hayes goal, but I must have been about 30 seconds ahead of you <laughs> because I, I wasn't at my seat, but I was on the aisle 
walking up to my seat in the wheat field stand, which is the one opposite the main stand. That's where we were. Yeah, we were the same. Yeah, yeah. And so so I was able to kind of react to the, the the noise of I think it's Rooney going down the right. So I looked around and I saw the goal, you know, but I hadn't actually got to my seat yet. Uh, so I was almost kind of I was almost falling around uh, drunk and happy before we'd even uh, before I'd even got to my seat. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't. I, you don't want to kind of give it the Billy Big Time stuff because, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that we dislike about the old firm, you know. But I did like the fact that we sold three sides of the ground and, and just just dominated the atmosphere, you know. And, um, you know, St. You know, Johnson must have felt pretty pretty outnumbered in the, in the, the Roseburn stand, you know. It was, yeah, it was, it was pretty special, really. It was. Shea Logan makes his Aberdeen debut um, in this one, having signed from Brentford on loan just a couple of days ahead of it. Um, lined up alongside Anderson, Reynolds, Constantine in the back, Jamie Langfield's in the sticks. A holding midfield of Willow Flood and a certain guy called Barry Robson. Uh, Peter Pollock, Niall McGinn and Johnny Hayes supporting Adam Rooney. He was making only his second appearance in red as well uh, this afternoon. And, and we've just touched on it, you know, amidst the rain in Gorgie, racing in an early lead, Hayes turning home that cross from Rooney um, after he'd capitalised on a poor clearance from Stevie Banks and the St. John's goal. And talk about a way of just settling those anxious nerves, I think, that we all came into that uh, that game with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it was a perfect start in that sense. Um, and it sounds a bit odd to say when you look at the eventual score, but I mean, there was a little bit of defending to do before we got the second goal. I mean, I, I watched it again the other night just to refresh my memory and Langfield produces a brilliant save, pushing a, a low shot from Lee Croft, I think it was, onto the post, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. They, 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 and You know, it's funny you should say that, that it was Rooney's second game and it was uh, Logan's debut and all that. And you think of the influences that those guys became under McInnes, you know, and... And, you know, you had McGinn scored a lot of goals that season. You had Hayes, you know, Paulette, almost peak PP baby at that point, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, you know, so that that really was an exciting team that McKenna's had at that point, you know, and, uh, and, and, and they expressed themselves that day, didn't they? They really did. I mean, you just touched there. The, we get the early goal. The next 30 minutes is a wee bit nervy. You just touched on, Jamie Laffey has to produce a number of good saves, and you're right about the one from Lee Croft. And then... Pollitt, I mean, we just talked about it there. Talk about undergoing a real resurgence during this season under Dan McInnes. Picks the ball up 30 yards from goal. Powers pass right before finishing well past Banks. And I think that was the moment for me where I was just like, yeah, we're, we're going to be fine here today after withstanding that 30 minutes and, and countering the way we did. Third goal, probably the moment that I think every Aberdeen fan had realised that we had a new number nine who meant business or number 17 as he was, but never mind. Pollock dispossessing Derek Mackay, his through ball to Rooney. And despite the fact that he had like the whole half to run with it, it never felt like he was going to miss it, did it? It, it didn't. It's a really good finish, though. You it's know, amazing. when you it's just put away. Uh, it's not, I mean, it is going through one on one, but I mean, he hits it pretty reasonably far out. Uh, I thought the Pollock goal was really exciting as well. You know, a midfield is just bursting through like that and, and, and really hitting it low on the angle and burying it under the keeper. And then the Rooney goal, you know, uh, the, was it, sorry, did you say it was Pollock again that put him through, wasn't it? Pollock sets him up, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pollock sets him up and he's through and yeah, 100%. And we, you know, we all fell in love with Rooney at that moment, didn't we? And uh, remain in love with him until this day. <laughs> Absolutely. And then that's it with like 30 minutes to go. Like, you kind of know it's done. And like, for an, 
so you know, as an Aberdeen fan of of my vintage, which sounds hilarious to say, you know, I I just missed out on the eighties. I was born in eighty three. My first ever cup final was the eighty nine Skull Cup final. So I've I've been fortunate enough that I've been to see us win it at Hamden. More league trophies than people probably around my age will have done. But I've never felt like that proper sense of how oh, we're done. Like this is easy. Like we're we're comfortably into the final now. We've got thirty minutes just to enjoy this and. It felt like, and you touched on it a minute ago as well, it felt like a proper moment of like catharsis for an Aberdeen support who've gone through at this point. 14 years of failing to make it just a cup final. At what point was it? How long was that now then? 19 years since we'd even won a bloody cup. Yeah. It just felt, you could feel the weight of almost the club like just lifted off its shoulders at that point, couldn't you? Totally. I mean, uh, and, and as you say, I mean, we're not used to, being in semi-finals or finals and, and being comfortably ahead and being able to kind of enjoy it, you know, in, in, in that way of utter certainty that you're going to win, you know, and and it, it ties in with that excitement that either Hearts or Inverness are going to be beatable in the final, you know, you don't have that kind of cloud hanging over the, that's going to be Rangers or Celtic and you're probably going to lose. So you, we had the, the anticipation of going in thinking, well, we're either going to be firm favourites against Inverness or or a 50-50 shout against Hearts, you know, and a, a winnable one. Um, so, and, and I think you can see a, the, the coming off the players' shoulders as well. But it was also exciting the, the way that yeah. team was playing, you know. It wasn't it wasn't just the win, it was the Pollock goal was exciting, the Rooney goal was exciting, even his first goal was exciting, you know. And so when it started to push rain really heavily <laughs> about that time, I don't think anyone really cared, you know, or even noticed. No, I don't think I did, that's for sure, until I got back to Haymarket. Um and yeah, like still time for a fourth. Hayes with a, a fine low finish past Banks. And, you know, we're just touching. You were obviously fortunate enough to have been a supporter during those glory years of the 80s. This did feel like a turning point for the club, this game, I thought. Because it's that thing. It's that like if you lose this game, who knows what happens from that point on. But in particular, like it seemed to fuel that belief amongst McInnes, amongst the squad, that we could pull ourselves out of what had been a generally awful period of our history from the kind of mid-90s through to this point. Yeah, and, and you know what? I actually considered picking the game that came the following weekend because we played Celtic in the Scottish Cup at Parkhead. And we were excellent. And we were excellent. And I was working at that game. but And I, obviously it didn't mean as much because of the way the, the campaign eventually went. But I mean, Paul had scored a fantastic goal in that match as well. I remember him pointing to where he wanted the ball put and, and it was delivered for him and he scored it. And it was a come from behind win to beat Celtic at Parkhead in the Cup. I mean, this this was a week after Tynecastle and you're thinking, what is this, what is this side capable of? What's, what's happening to us, you know? Um, and then, listen, we know what happened in the remainder of the season, but you know, at least we won the League Cup under... Uh, I'm with you, Gary, because the size of the support we took to Parkhead that day is one of my most favourite things of being an Aberdeen fan, just to see numbers like that turning up. And, and remember, we wanted more tickets as well. Yeah. You know? um, I, that surprised me in a way that you know, I, I wasn't sure how many tickets we would sell. But if you remember, it was it was it went twenty five, it was twenty eight, it was thirty, it was thirty two, it was thirty. It's like where is this going? Like you know, I mean, everybody was was in on this, you know. Um, and it, who knows how many were so? But but I love that. I mean, Parkhead that that day was just was just magical, but unbelievably tense and yeah. a shit game and all the rest of it, you know. But um, <laughs> 
we got there. So at least at least the Tyne Castle thing meant something. It wasn't just a day. I mean, it was it was a building block of winning the cup. You know. Yeah, and as you say, it's just it's that what if isn't it? It's that unfortunateness about the fact that same opponents in the semi final Scottish Cup later in the season because that team, the way we played that season, that team should have gone on and had a cup double. It's fair to say. Um, yeah, yeah. Listen, I mean, it, it sounds arrogant and all the rest of it to say it, but we should have won that cup. You know, um, I look back, and it was either, obviously it was St Johnston that won it, but the other semi was St Johnston against uh, no, sorry, the other uh, Dundee United. So yeah. even if if we'd played St Johnston or Dundee United, we played them ten times that season, and we only lost once, and that was that semi final at Ibrox. You know, so and we finished well above both of them in the league. So. I mean, God, and to the chance of a cup double. I mean, I I did see the one obviously in in uh, and eighty five, eighty six, but they don't come along often, you know. And you think, God, what a chance that was, you know. And but listen, hey, St Johnson beat us fair and square at Ibrox that day. Can't no complaints. But my God, it was dep- it was disappointing, you know. Yeah, proper what if. But yeah, that 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 moment at Tyne Castle, I'm really glad you picked it because I think I've been waiting for somebody to pick this game for a while now. Um, it meant a lot to a lot of people. Unfortunately, Gav missed it. Gav's record as semi-finals goes is absolutely appalling. And he misses. And as a result of this now, we're like almost for the upcoming semi-final. But Gav, I think maybe you should just sit this one out because <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible record. Um, but where would... I mean, you touched on it earlier on it. Obviously, the obvious ones, if you've been at them, were Gothenburg, were Bayern. Where would this one rank, though, realistically for you in the in the in the rankings? Uh, oh yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would certainly be top ten. I mean, if that sounds ridiculous to say, I've just picked it as my favourite. But, no, but, it's, but you, no. you're you're barring me from from picking the other <laughs> ones. So you know, uh, a, a favourite of mine. Well, I've, I, you know, the, the cup of '86. I loved because it was beating hearts, you know. Uh, and the Cup of 90 was great as well, you know, especially since we haven't won the bloody thing since, you know, the Scottish Cup. Um, I, I mean, I wasn't I, I wasn't in Gothenburg. My, I'm too, too working class and too poor to be able to get my uh, family to take me to um, Gothenburg, but uh, lived through them all. Yeah, well, listen, uh, uh, the other thing about it, my, my boys were there, you know, so uh, I think they, it was a formative day for them as well as Aberdeen yeah. fans because, you know, they were, uh, you know, they suffered, especially the older, not suffered isn't isn't right, but, you know, they, they didn't really have enough to buy into being an Aberdeen fan in the first few years. You know, there wasn't, wasn't that much that you could really sell to them, you know. Uh, and then suddenly days like that one made you think, okay, there's something happening here, you know. And, and I, I think, I, I think to go on and win a cup is, it's a huge that leaves a big imprint on a kid, doesn't it? You know, to 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 see them and to for them to have been there at that as well. You know, um, I think that really bonds them to a, to a club at, at a young age. Yeah, and I think that was one of the massive, such a key point. It was such a massive moment for the club and for the city. I think around that period of time as well, because there felt at that time again that like there was a real connection between the two again, which sometimes doesn't seem to be there. And I think it's kind of drifted away, and then it kind of came back at that point and. It's kind of stuck around since that point, which is great. And you, that's when you start seeing more kids around the city wearing Aberdeen strips. You know, for yeah. years it had been Manchester United or Arsenal or Chelsea or, or you know, God forbid, two of the Glasgow teams. Um, and that's when you really start to see that happening again. And it's it's funny as well you talked about yeah, your sons because from a formative perspective, because again, like even Gav, so like that Gav's also my brother and Gav missed out on all that glory time. There's only four years difference between us, but it's amazing what four years of a difference can make in terms of your life following Aberdeen. And 
that League Cup final was the first one Gav had been there in person to see us actually win. And there was a generation of Aberdeen fans, probably two generations mm. of Aberdeen fans who fell into that that box. So it was a remarkable time um, all around. And it's one of those, that, again, it's just such a shame in one hand the way that the, the Dennett McInnes time at Aberdeen came to an end because sometimes I think these days get a little bit forgotten about sometimes as a result of that. But um, fingers crossed, hopefully we can go back to relive some of those in, in November. It's funny when you when you watch the highlights of it. I mean, he even looks different because he's clean shaven. <laughs> oh, he looks about twenty years younger. I know it was ten years ago, but he looks twenty years younger. Uh, and you know, Hayes was in his in his prime, really. You know, and and McGinn and and Rooney and guys that we really kind of came to love in that era. They were so exciting and they were so. Uh, you know, prolific. Certainly, Rooney was prolific. You know, but the other two chipped in with some big moments too. You know, um, and it was a really exciting side to watch. And they were, I mean, they had their moments against Celtic as well. You know, obviously not in finals, but uh, but they were able to beat them a, a few times. And as I say, they beat them the following week. You know, absolutely, Michael. Listen, it's been a pleasure to get a chance to to wander back down. I was just saying, memory lane. It's like nine years ago, which in itself is terrifying. It's terrifying to be ten years next year already from this but um, it's been a privilege getting a chance to talk to you this evening about that one and also like I said earlier on all the very best with the, the new release of the book hopefully that goes swimmingly I'll say it again get out there buy it especially uh, for anyone you know who's an Aberdeen fan or a fan of Scottish football it's a great read Michael Grantham thank you so much for joining us on the EPZ Football Podcast stand free pleasure was mine Gary thanks very much for having me on all the best and there we go Gav that'll wrap us up for this week's episode of the ABZ FP. thanks for joining us Please remember to like, subscribe, follow, whatever you might do in your podcast player of choice. Join us next time for episode 129 of the show as we'll preview the return of the cinch as the Dons face Dundee and then welcome POK to Pataudry in the Europa Conference League. We look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. Yock, bring it on. This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was brought to you in association with Siberia Bar and Hotel on Belmont Street, Aberdeen. Head into the bar, quote the phrase ABZ Pod, that's ABZ Pod, for a £3 pint of Foster's, £4 pint of Moretti, or £5 pint of Fierce any day of the week, including match days. Siberia is open seven days a week, all year round, and the bar is located only 30 seconds walk from the nearest bus stop taking supporters to Stadium for free on match days. Come on, you Reds.